Hi guys and welcome to episode three of the Live Motocross podcast. Uh, I'm Sophie McGinn and joining me today uh, we've got Darren Bartholomew. Yes, I roped him into another episode with me. Hi Soph, how you doing guys out there? Welcome to the show. Uh, well, I'll let you introduce our absolute legendary uh, star on the show today, Soph. He's <laughs> so excited about this, aren't you? I think you've been giddy for the past hour of putting the phone to you. <laughs> So we have one of the legends in the sport, 500cc multiple world champion and motocross legend, uh, Dave Thorpe. Hi, you guys. How hey, are mate. you getting on? Yeah, all good. All good. We're in lockdown here in sunny Devon, as most of the country is. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least we managed to get you figured out on the podcast now. We had a bit of uh, techie issues this morning, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. Well, I did. You didn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just the fun and games, mate. Don't worry about it. But uh, happy to have you on, mate. And um as we said off air, um, you are the reason why I got into the sport in the first place. Um, my dad took me to Hawkson and to Farley Castle. And uh, from watching you in the, in the days when I was a kid, that was it. That was my introduction to motocross. And I just wanted to be a part of it from that way onwards. So uh, thank you so much for that, mate. You have been an absolute legend and an inspiration in our sport. I will say that up front. Uh, that's nice. We wanted to get you on the podcast, Dave, because we wanted to sort of uh go in depth with you um about how you got started in the sport um you know what it was like for you as a kid coming into the the sport of motocross um what was your sort of earliest memories of going to motocross and was there anyone you kind of looked up to all that sort of stuff yeah my my um introduction into what was scrambling in those mm -hmm. days of course wasn't, <laughs> wasn't motocross my dad um when he came out of the army he um he used to ride motocross in the southeastern centre. Yeah. And as a um, a baby, obviously, we went as a family. Not that I remember it. I see the pictures, but um, I used to go and uh, support my dad with my mum. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was about three years old, um, dad and his friend, Derek Evans, uh, they made uh, a very small bike for me. Because in those days, you couldn't, you couldn't go to a shop and buy a bike. Yeah. Um, for a child, you it was all homemade. So that bike kind of went on the trailer with my dad's bike, and my dad would race, and then I would have a little ride around afterwards. Um, and that bike um, was a geared bike, and my dad used to sort of teach me to change gear and basically mm -hmm. run alongside me and say, change down, brake, all the things that uh, you still have to do when you teach someone from the beginning. And yeah. then um, schoolboy motocross was uh, just getting going really then. And um, my dad and Dennis made a bigger bike uh, when I was mm -hmm. five years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I had my first race um, in, uh, I think it was Oxford area. Um, and really the schoolboy stuff kind of just started to gain momentum. So we used to uh, ride uh, around where we lived. And then my dad, mm -hmm. he started to take me a little bit further away. So I had more experience, you know, on different tracks. We went to Wales, which um, in those days seemed a million miles away to where I lived. <laughs> um, and in between all of the riding, uh, dad used to take me uh, to watch. Um, used to watch the Hans Grand International on Good Friday. Um, yeah. The Ken Hall Motocross on Bank Holiday Monday in August. and. Uh, yeah, those events, there was um, lots of great British riders, uh, Banks, Bickers, Vic Allen, Vic Eastwood. Um, so he used to really get there. We used to get there early so he could get in without paying. And mm -hmm. um, <laughs> we, he used to say to me, look, Dave, we're going to have a walk around. But the bottom line is you need to be back here at 4.30. And I was about eight or nine years old then. And yeah. I specifically remember the kennel. We used to sit on the bank with, in all the crowds and just watch the racing. And, um, you know, they're really happy memories for me as a child, um, going to watch the races with Dad. Mm -hmm. And the other little bonus that I had was Dad uh, was workshop manager at Comerford at Thames Ditton. And um, that uh, get the shop was the main workshop for the factory Bultarco team. So right. um, on a Saturday, I used to sort of go to work sometimes with dad and sit in the corner of the workshop 
and watch Vic Allen and Reg May, who was the tuner and the, the engine guy there then. So I kind of had a little bit of an insight into how it all worked from a very early age when I was a boy. Mm-hmm. Um, Vic, Vic, in, Vic was a Vic Allen was a, a lot helped me as a child when I was a child yeah. because I used to be able to go out and watch him ride and talk to him. And he was the first person actually who I think I was about. 11 yeah he asked me once if i wanted to have a go on his uh i think it was a 360 sherpa so that was my first introduction onto a like a big open class bike and i still remember that now it was over on haywards heath and i remember riding it as a youngster and thinking oh my god this could go to the moon it was so fast (laughs) i was gonna say that's the beast of a bike mate to start off with yeah it was it was it was um yeah happy memories for me really happy memories so moving on into your roof career, uh, youth career then, Dave, obviously I'm going to read these stats out because they're pretty impressive because I know you won't. But <laughs> 76, 77, 78, three-time British schoolboy champion. And like you say, the schoolboy movement was really starting to take to make way then. 79, 500T British under-18 champion, which is phenomenal. And then 1980 went on to become the, obviously the first British, British champion on the 500 then as well. Plus the fact, me and Sophie were talking about this off air, that you had a stint in the AMCA as well, I believe. Yeah, I was just going to say, you missed that bit out. So um, when I was, um, <laughs> what was I? When I was uh, just coming up for 15, my dad wrote to the ACU and said, look, you know, Dave, he's a big lad on a, on a one, two, five. Um, <clears throat> I'd won everything that I possibly could. Would they consider allowing me to go into the ACU a year early? Because in those days, it had to be 16. Um, and uh, the answer was uh, no. Um, so dad looked at alternatives and uh, he hooked up with Don Green at the AMCA. And Don was a massive influence um, for me at that point because it allowed me to ride a 250 at 15, which I couldn't do in the ACU. But it also gave me an amazing amount of experience with um, different people, you know, whilst the AMCA. AMCA was considered and still is an amateur organization. There were still some really good riders in there that, that really taught me a lot through that period. And it also gave me my first taste of international motocross. Um, Don managed to get me an entry into Switzerland, Amarisville. And um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a big part of, of uh, growing up for me in the AMCA. What what was it like turning up for you then um, with with into the first kind of go into the adult scene then, as it were? I mean, were you daunted by it or did you just believe in yourself knowing that you had the speed and whatever else? How how did you tackle it? Well, it wasn't easy for me. I'm not, you know, like I, I didn't win um, everything by any means in the, in the early days. Uh, my MCA year was with Honda on the Red Rocket, which was an amazing bike. Um, and then... Kawasaki come along uh, with an offer to go into what the ACU. <clears throat> um, Honda were keen for me to stay another year in the AMCA, but Dad um, wanted me to go up. So at the end of my first year with the AMCA, I needed to get my expert points in the ACU. So I did various um, races around the, the country where I could get my points. And in those days, you had junior and expert races. And at the end of the day, you had an all-comers. Mm-hmm. And in that all-comers race, I was allowed to race. And um, I had some, you know, real uh, great races with people that um, I'd looked up with over the years. And uh, it just slowly progressed, really. It wasn't easy in the beginning by any means. Um, there were times in my, in my life where I thought, you know what, this is, this, I don't know if this is going to happen because it doesn't always go the way you want it to go. Um, especially in racing, because lots of different things happen. But um, fortunately, it uh, it kind of sl- started to take shape. And another thing a lot of people probably won't know about you, Dave, as well, is you, you could have gone a different way altogether and you could have had a professional um, footballing contract with Queen's Park Rangers, couldn't you? Um, we've seen the likes of Cal Crutcho, obviously, taking the 50-50 jump and, and going to MotoGP in the end. So you had a very similar background and you could have easily have gone the, the football route. Well, I don't know that it would have been easy. And, and you know, people, know, but nothing yeah, people talk about the football. I mean, I love football. Um, 
dad, when I was growing up, dad was always very mindful that I didn't get bored with riding my bike. <laughs> um, so, you know, through the winter, from the end of September through to March, I never used to ride my bike at all. Um, and he used to, to be very keen for me to pursue other sports. And in my uh, primary school and uh, senior school, they were very sport-minded. So I played an awful lot of soccer, rugby, uh, basketball, swimming. I did everything that I possibly could. But the football, I kind of had a group of friends that we all used to play together. And then we went from district to county. And then, of course, I had my trials at QPR. About the same time as uh, the Honda um, deal come along for the AMCA. But kind of my take on it was and still is, um, you know, I kind of, whilst I can be a team player, it's not my preference. Um, I kind of like individual sports where you're in charge of your own destiny. Um, so that was kind of, at 15, that was my mindset. That you know, I like the fact that when I sat on the line at a race, it was all about me and the bike. Um, whereas yeah. In, yeah. in a team sport, um, you know, you rely on, um, in soccer, 10 other people. So. Um, yeah, that was always my mindset. And I think any any person that has swung a leg over a bike completely gets that. At, at the end of the day, it's down to you and your machine and there's nothing else that matters. It's just down to yourself. So we get that. Do you, do you have any regrets over that decision at all? Or was it very straightforward and clean cut for you? Oh, no, very straightforward. I mean, I, you know, one thing that dad always said to me when I was growing up was, Dave, if you work hard in this sport, you'll do well. Because I love and still do love riding bikes you know I, I kind of love going out on the trails now um and I'm, fifth, I'm now 57 now so I kind of motorbikes is my love I love two-wheel motorbikes and um I just enjoy it whether it was racing in the 80s or even now just going out and riding it's uh you kind of disconnect from the world um and you're mm -hmm. in, you've got your helmet on and you're in your own little zone. And I kind of like that. Yeah, I agree with you. Everyone seems to just go in their own little bubble, don't they? And it's, it seems to be what everyone's missing at the moment, unfortunately. <laughs> I think, I think it's quite fitting that that comes up now because, you know, come the other side of this COVID-19, yeah. I think everybody is just going to invest in getting back to basics and just doing, enjoying the things that they love, you know, so it, 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 it's mm. so much better time. So uh, let, let's hope that comes out more into fruition, really. Yeah. So just one of the, the questions that I wanted to jump in on as well. Um, what was your first sort of GP like for you? How did that come about? Um, so um, May the 26th, 1980. Um, wow, that's impressive yeah. for a start. <laughs> I, I broke my leg. Um, I broke my leg very badly in Bathenthwaite. Um, ride where mm -hmm. I made a mistake, and uh, unfortunately, the bike hit me on the way through. And that that was the beginning of um, a very long period for Dad and I, because <clears throat> we uh, we went to Belgium. A doctor called Doctor Dewaydewin, um, who uh, was held in a similar vein to Doctor Klaus now and the guy that fixes most of the motocross riders. Um, mm -hmm. They drove me there through the night. Uh, I woke up in the morning, um, having had my op, um, to a load of nuns around my bed, which honestly... Oh, my God. ...absolutely <laughs> freaked me out, because I thought... I'd yeah, I was going to say, I thought it was your last calling. Um, but the upshot of that is the, the operation didn't go well. I got an infection in the leg, and... Um, <clears throat> It just wasn't healing. Um, and then the only good thing to come out of that experience was that I met uh, Mr. Hadfield. Um, and Mr. Hadfield was the FIM doctor. He became a real good personal friend to me. Um, and the upshot is he kind of fixed my leg. Um, he took all my plates out, took all the infection out. And it was touch and go for a while what was going to happen. 13 months later, um, I managed to get on a bike again. Um, so I started to ride in uh, June 1981. And I think um, my first Grand Prix was, it was either July or August, was the French Grand Prix at a place called Metz, M-E-T-Z. Mm -hmm. And um, I did all right. I think from memory, I might have had a 
seventh and a twelfth or something. I rode all right. Um, I suffered with the heat because obviously I hadn't ridden for so long and the conditioning wasn't good. Um, but that was yeah. my first uh, my first Grand Prix. And of course, then in your professional career, things really started to to move on quite quickly for then in the Grand Prix. And they factory Honda team in eighty three, Grand Prix winner in eighty four. Um, well, I actually won my first Grand Prix race in eighty two. Okay, whereabouts was that? Um, Where was my, that? I think I won. I'm not sure which way around it is. People will remember it better than me. But I won a race at Bali. Um, pretty sure I won a race at Bali in '82. And yeah, you did. It was uh, you won from Romans and Lackey. Yeah, and then I think the second race, I think I was third. I might be wrong. Yeah. Lackey, Romans, and Thorpe because complete yeah, so, turnaround from the first motor. Yeah, so um, Brad, um, Brad won the Grand Prix based on um, time because in those days uh, mm-hmm. they used to put the two times together. And I also won a race um, in a track that was really good for me in the years to come um, at Sittendorf in Austria. Um, <clears throat> I think I went 1-3 there and Brad went, unfortunately, 3-1 as well. So he beat me on the overall. Um, mm-hmm. so those eight, 82 um kawasaki had a uh, with alec wright had a bike that was um the engine configuration was for me was a 443 so not yeah. 499 like brad uh, was riding it was a 443 and and that was an amazing bike for me because it it was uh, a rider friendly bike wasn't an arm wrencher and at that time of my career it allowed me to race i wasn't scared of the bike mm-hmm. um but you quite rightly say the end of 82 um honda approached me again i kind of feel a little bit sorry for the lads in the uk now the youth because i had the benefit of graham noyce neil hudson in the british championships with me and whilst that was mm-hmm. good for my development it also put me in the spotlight of the Grand Prix teams. So when Graham and Neil used to come, they used to bring an entourage of Japanese, and you know mm-hmm. that allowed the Japanese to see me in action over the British Championships, and it really put my name at the front. Uh, even though my results were okay and I was progressing well, it just put me in, should we say, the shop window. And um, you know, without Graham and Neil being there, without the Japanese there, I don't know if I'd have got that break at the end of it too. Yeah. Just jumping back to, um, obviously, you mentioned about Farley as well. Um, what was that like for you sort of winning, you know, the first home GP there? What was that like? Well, you mean in um, 82? Yeah, yeah. Well, it came yeah. out of nowhere. I mean, again, you know, Farley was a track that was really kind to me in the years ahead as well, but it kind of suited me, as did Sittendorf. Um, in Austria, it, it was mm-hmm. a grassy-based track with lots of cambers and everything that I'd grown up on. So, yeah, it was for me. It was a track that I felt at home with immediately. Um, but it, mm-hmm. the thing with the British Grand Prix is, as a British rider, if you're riding well and you and you get the crowd behind you, there's no there's no better feeling. I, I can only imagine. I mean, I can remember being in the crowd with my dad and just screaming every single lap as you come by. Um, but as you say, going back to Sittendorf and Farley, they were both good tracks for you, very natural flowing tracks. Um, and But I, I read, if, I don't know if it's true or not, but there was a story I read um, about you actually turning up to the wrong Sittendorf. Is that right? In the very yeah. beginning? So in, <laughs> in, when dad and I first started to do Grand Prix, we used to travel together in a in um a Mercedes van, I think it was. And uh I was the map reader. And uh, Oh dear. Yeah. So, so this is down on oh, you yeah, then. Definitely. And um <laughs> we turned up where we thought we were and we were asking around the village where the track was, no one had a clue. And then we got our map out and uh, they pointed out that we were miles away. Miles. Away. Oh no. <laughs> so it kind of it didn't start the weekend well for me because we got there very late. And I didn't get to see the track, but um, the next morning I was up bright and early, and I had a good walk round. And I just thought, you know what, this is this has got my name all over it. I just felt that um, it was a good track for me. I, I just off the back of that question, knowing how close you were with your dad in those early days, do you honestly think you'd have accomplished as much as you did without him by your side? Uh, no, no. 
I kind of knew that was going to be the answer, but I just wondered. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a very big influence, wasn't he? Both because I, I can remember watching you on the start line at Hawks and thinking, and then this is very, especially we've got what's going on at the moment in the world. Both myself and, and Soph get very anxious about lots of things in life in general. And, and yeah. we have this, we have this affinity together, don't we, Soph, when we in these things. <laughs> and from a racing point of view, I always used to get anxious before the line and things like this. But what I remember, what the one thing I did used to take away from you was how calm you were before a race like nothing ever seemed to bother you as big as it was. It, which, how did you cope with that back in the day? <clears throat> to be fair, um, <clears throat> yeah, dad, dad, mum and mum and dad brought me up um, in a very basic but straight way. There was right and wrong. There was no grey area. Mm -hmm. um, you always do your best and you're always honest. And they were the kind of things that they brought me up to. And in the racing, I kind of, I find bike riding very natural. I've been very lucky with that. It's not something that I find difficult. And mm -hmm. um, I kind of feel that when I'm on a bike, I'm at home. So whilst, you know, yeah, the races, I was always calm and quite chatty, um, you know, but if I tell you um, what year, in 1989, um, Farley Castle, you know, there was thousands, thousands of people there. And I remember going to the line and people, as I rode down, they were tapping me on the shoulder. Um, and I remember getting tears in my eyes. Wow. Aww. Wow. Wow. You know, kind of, yeah, it's a passion. Isn't it? and, uh, yeah, it's very humbling, I think, mate, is the, is the quick answer to that. Because obviously that was the year you had two moto wins. Yeah, but, you know, when I sat on the yeah. line, I had tears in my eyes. And I had to take my goggles off and wipe them because um, <laughs> I didn't want the tears. It was just that emotional. Yeah. It's that passion, isn't it? It's, uh, it's what oh, it's definitely. Uh, uh, would you say that? Would you say that that was probably your one of your favourite career moments? Eighty uh, nine. Yeah, <clears throat> is, is in that is that one of the main things that kind of sticks in your head about with Barley? Yeah, I kind of all all the British Grand Prix that I did well at, um, they all mm -hmm. stick in my mind because, like I said just now, when you're well, you're British or you're French, wherever you are, when you race your home Grand Prix and you you kind of, you want to perform for the people that are there, your home crowd. Yeah. And when, when that all works for you, there's no better feeling, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the flip side of that is, you know, when you um, have your British Grand Prix and it doesn't quite work out, like for me, um, at Hawkstone in 86, I yeah. kind of, <clears throat> when I got there on that Sunday morning, I knew it wasn't my day. Uh, you just I get just, that feeling, yeah. don't you? Why, why do you say that, Dave? What, what made it? Um, you know, when you, well, you know, any, any professional motocross rider will tell you that, you know, you train for the season, but in that season, you have little highs and lows. You know, sometimes you're just not feeling it or you feel that your fitness has just dropped. and you know, that day at Hawkstone, to do well against Eric, George, uh, Andre Maller, any of the brilliant sand riders that were around in that time, you, you had to be on top of your game in physical and riding-wise. And I knew that day that it just wasn't quite there for me. Even though in 86 I won the championship, I, you know, I've said many a time, I never felt that the 86 season flowed. I felt it was a tough year. It was just every race was a grind. And um, I, I don't know whether that was the burden of carrying the number one plate for the first time, but I just felt that it was a tough year. I was going to say that burden on that number one plate, bearing in mind, folks, as well, that it was live on TV, if I remember right, the second race in particular, 20,000 plus fans. And then I think, didn't you crash in the first race and had to come back? Yeah, I crashed through the whoop and um, yeah, I just, yeah, it was, it was a tough day in the office for me. I mean, I didn't ride too bad, you know, for most people, I think I was top five or top six in both races, which, you know, in the, the Grand Prix season wasn't a disaster. But for me, at the British Grand Prix, where you want to do so well for your home fans, it's, yeah, it was definitely disappointing.
me and myself and Soph obviously quite get at Hawkson quite a bit with the commentary and, and, and work and things like that. And one of the things that we wanted to ask you and just what your thoughts were, 1984, if I can take you back to then, at Hawkson, um, and again, on TV, you managed to win both races. But what I wanted to ask is, and not a lot of people know this, I don't think, unless they were actually there. It was the year that Joe Bay jumped the big double jump. Yeah. And you actually tried it in practice, didn't you? Yeah. Is yeah, right? I did. It was, um, it was, yeah, one of those. I mean, leading up to that race, the, the, my form wasn't brilliant. Um, whilst I won a, the Grand Prix in Sweden, it wasn't amazing. I was sort of there or thereabouts, but not winning regularly enough. And um, I took two mm -hmm. weeks off. Um, at that time, uh, Sharon and I had a little boy, Lewis, um, and we had two weeks off. We went to Brighton. I never run. I never train. Uh, I literally had two weeks away. I didn't even practice. I just kept away from everything. And I turned up at Hawkstone really refreshed really buzzing and uh, right from the very first lap i just the opposite of 86 i just thought this is this has got my name on it i felt strong i felt mm -hmm. really sharp um and having that break had really done me some good um and someone after the first practice said to, to me george is jumping that jump or he's eyeing up to jump the jump i think it was at that point and my dad interjected in the conversation. He said, Dave, you don't need to do that. <laughs> I said, Dad, I know. I'm all right. I won't, I'm not going to do it. Anyway, in time practice, I was three seconds that quicker than anybody. Uh, I went wow. out on the first lap. And, you know, many a, a motocrosser that's listening to this will know, you know, on a sand track to get the, the flying lap, they're always on the beginning, one, two, or three. And I literally... You know, I was hanging off the back of that Honda like a bit of washing for that lap. You know, I don't even think I breathed <laughs> all the way around. But I've got the lap in. That gave me that buffer. And I come in and I said to Dad, is he jumping that jump? And he said, yeah, but Dave, you don't need to do it because you're three seconds quicker. <laughs> so I went round. And on the last lap, I rode round and I parked my bike. I remember it clear as day. I parked my bike at the top of the sand pit. And I thought, oh, I've got to do this jump. I've got to do this jump. And uh, unbeknown to me, Eric had tried it five minutes before me and um, broke his leg. It ended up a very different yeah, way, he didn't broke it? Broke his leg. So I, I dropped it into second, in third, and I was going at it. And I remember hitting it. And we've all been there. Everybody that's listening <laughs> to this has been there. I just, as soon as I took off, I just thought, I'm not going quick enough. We're in trouble yeah, here. Big trouble. So I had the big panic rev, and luckily for me, I hit the up <laughs> and it kind of bounced me somehow, and there was no skill involved, trust me, it was pure luck. <laughs> but somehow, I stayed on it. And um, I don't know whether that hurt me in my pride, or the race that my dad gave me when I got back in. <laughs> dad was not impressed. He said, you could have blown it all. Look at him. And like, I looked across in Eric's on in and they were injecting his leg and sort of trying to make him so that he could ride. So yeah, George, um, an iconic picture of George jumping over uh, Andre. Um, but um, yeah. I, it was a, it could have been altogether sinister moment for have, you really. It could have ended what, what was going to be the beginning of quite a good run for me. And just that moment in time. But I think from everything I've heard from you, you, you almost felt like you, you had to do it in a way. You do. You feel a bit of peer pressure, you know. Um, you know, whatever level you ride at, you know, whether you're out with your mates, if your mate jumps a jump, there is a part of you that thinks, I've got to do that as well. And yeah. um you have to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's yeah. <laughs> it's one of those yeah, it's one of those things that when you're at that level and someone on your level is jumping, you think, Oh yeah, I've got to do that. On nowhere near the same scale, we had a, a local track to us called Shobden, which we all love in the AMCA that we did. And they, it was the first time they built a triple in. And I can remember coming around and saying to my dad, if I get the whole shot, dad, I'm, I'm just going to do it. And, um, <laughs> and I did. And I came around and it's just that feeling that I just thought, and I was getting I don't know, nowhere near, but probably two seconds a lap from yeah. it. 
but on the last lap, somebody had changed my, my line. They were in my line, and I'll always forget it, or try to forget it at least, because I, I had another line, cased the triple completely. The bike cartwheeled, went uh, like 50 yards down the track, all bent <laughs> over. I managed to wind myself, got underneath the ropes, and an old farmer boy with a crook stick, I could always remember him, came over to me. If I wasn't in enough pain, tapped me and said, Boy, that's the best entertainment I've had all day. And just walked off. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, oh, no one here is monumental as yours, mate. And no way would I have had the, the cojones to do that, I don't think. But, you know, I think everybody's been there and done it. But just just off the back of that day, then, and I'm going to really put you on the spot now. Of the, of the Grand Prix UK tracks then, did you have a preference to Hawkston or Farley? Which, which one? Um, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't, I didn't mind either. As long as I had a good bit of form behind me and everything was pretty good, no injuries, you know, like mm-hmm. um, I've won at Hawkstone, I've won at Farley. Um, I've been beaten at Hawkstone, I've been beaten at Farley. Um, my Farley 87, I had a, <clears throat> a big problem with my shoulder, um, which uh, Mr. Hadfield injected. I did quite well in the first race. The second race, the painkillers wore off. Um, but out of the two, no, I didn't mind um, as long as I was in good form. You know, that was always the key because to beat, as I said before, the Belgium and the Dutch boys in um, Hawkstone, you had to be in good shape. And that goes back to the Farley incident, if I remember back, where the English fan threw beer in the front of Joe Bay's face. I think that was 87, wasn't it? Was that 87, yeah? Yeah, they were dropping <laughs> what, what? it off the... Off the bridge over the track. Off the bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was just up from there, off off the jump off the big downhill. Um, what what were your thoughts going back to that then? I mean, I mean the, the crowd was immensely passionate. What what did you think as a, a pro rider and obviously being where you were at the time? To be honest, we've all experienced different things. You know, it's uh, it you know, you, you never like to see it when it's against the competitor. And I think, you know, the club asked me to to go on the mic and just ask people just to behave, you know, but passions run quite high you know um mm. in 85 um uh, at, at namur um just before i come down to the to the ca- cafe where the pub was um somebody pushed a straw bale off the top and caught back of caught my shoulder and just almost pulled me off the bike but didn't you know you, you kind of you get people that are extremely passionate for their own riders and um it's just life and it? it's just how it is in, in 89 yeah. eric and i had an amazing race at um, namur and uh, when we when i come down past the pub onto the road um people were spraying beer in my face and uh, i was thinking to myself oh, eric's belgian fans they're not going to get me they're not going to let it bother me and unbeknownst to me <laughs> the same people were spraying the same beer in eric's face and he was thinking bloody british what are they doing now <laughs> so we joke we joked about it in the evening because i thought it was his fans and he thought it was my fans but in the end we were both getting well, I'm, 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 the only thing I can say to that, mate, is I'm glad it was beer, really, because it could have been well, yeah, it was, really, if you think it about was, it. it. It's not what you want in the middle of a 40-minute moto tasting beer. No, no. Tasting the evening, not during the race. <laughs> yeah. I mean, getting back to that, 40 minutes plus two laps, Soph, as well, in a I moto. Know, 40 minutes twice. plus two. Oh, it's just unheard of now, isn't it? I mean... I, I can remember you, Dave, as well, being on the... You remember that edition of DBR when you were on the front cover when you were doing your training, doing the flies, I think I it was? I try not to, because my friends now <laughs> regularly take the mickey out of that picture. <laughs> but not going to lie, you were the... God, that training regime then, like, you had to do it. Otherwise, you were never going to be... Even if you thought you had a chance. I mean, there's no way. I mean, you were a big guy back in the day as well, weren't you? Let's be honest. So um, that training regime was, at that time, was almost unheard of, really, wasn't it? Well, I kind of... I, I've always enjoyed the physical aspect of, of racing, like the training and that. And uh, I think if you if you enjoy that part of... Um, racing then i think um it makes it a lot easier for you i guess it gives you a little bit of a head start if you're a person that doesn't really like the physical side of it then motocross you know is always going to be a difficult sport for you so jumping forward to sort of like 
uh, more current times at the moment. Um, obviously, you've got the the Bill based team with the with the boys, Tommy and Steve, in that yeah. lot. Um, how did that sort of come about for you? You mean from the beginning? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, how um, did sort of the teams come about? Yeah, and... I did. Um, um, a friend of mine called Steve Hyde, who's dad, he's not here now with us. Um, he had a, a a business interest in CCM. And mm -hmm. um, CCM with uh, Austin Clues, um, they were doing some projects of designing some chassis for motocross. So mm -hmm. they kind of asked me to if I would sort of front that project with them. And we went um, Grand Prix racing. So it kind of got me mm -hmm. back into the sport. Um, and then um, for different reasons, that stopped. And um, then I decided to, to, you know, start up a team on my own. Um, and obviously went yeah. down the Honda route. And then slowly we attracted sponsors. And that's where it's kind of grown from. I think that was, um, I want to say, 10 or 12 years ago now. Time flies, doesn't it? <laughs> that was the Cat Honda team, no, was it, Cat, from memory? the Cat Honda team nope. was after I finished racing. So that was 99, 2000. Um, right, okay. This, this is much, much further along the line uh, into the sort of what is the build-based team now. So that's how it's evolved, really. As as team manager, then, do you have any, or do you try and have any influence with regards to your riders? I mean. I mean, I've I've noticed trackside that you do quite a lot of spotting. For instance, um, you, you might walk a track and and help them out that way. Wise, we see a lot in World Superbike and MotoGP now. Is what what is your major role? Would you consider then in your team? Um, well, it's quite easily structured here, really. Um, you know, anything uh, to do with uh, racing um, in terms of spare parts and sponsored stuff is is my son Ryan. Ryan takes care of the day-to-day -day stuff in the race team um yeah. i uh, deal with the riders um in terms of contract and and any problems that we have um and i deal yeah. directly with the sponsors in the attracting new sponsors and entertaining the current ones um mm -hmm. i like to, to be on hand with the guys when i can you know jake and uh, tommy and steven i've got uh, currently three riders that uh, are very professional they know their jobs <clears throat> they certainly don't need me sticking their nose in um <laughs> when we're at the races if i see things you know we'll chat through quietly um but you know one thing i've learned as i've got older is is that you know you can you can talk to people of what you see and what you don't see and if they take it on board then happy days and if they don't then it never offends me and i always make that quite clear with the guys you know, I kind mm -hmm. of, um, you know, I know how difficult it is to ride the bikes at speed. And, and what you see from the side is not always what you see behind the bars. Um, but, yeah. yeah, I've got three guys that um, have got a vast amount of experience between them. So um, it, it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it, it's not something where I, <clears throat> I'm of the opinion it's my way or no way. It's just not how we are. Yeah. And also, you've got the um, the off road school as well. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit more about that, and, we've got and what people can come and try we've got out. Two and off road stuff. schools. So we've got the Dave Thorpe Honda Off Road, um, <clears throat> which is mm -hmm. a trail school, which yeah. is aimed at people um, that may have ridden a bit in their youth and moved away from the sport, or maybe been through motocross, then stopped, and then just want to get back into it. Um, yeah, and that's based down here in Somerset. Um, and then we've got the Honda Adventure School, which is the Africa twin base bike. We do two day and one day events mm -hmm. there, and that's really based on people that you know maybe want to go and do some overseas riding, some touring, and they might come across some green lanes or forestry type tracks, and they want to just feel comfortable about riding on those. Um, mm -hmm. And also, you've got people that you know, considering investing in an Africa twin um, and they can come and ride it for a day or two with us and, um, you know, appraise yeah. the bike and everything that it can do. Now, how sort of tempting is it for you to kind of get on the bikes and get involved when you've got experience days going? Because I would be out every day. Um, for the Africa <laughs> twin business, uh, 
is uh, Pat. Pat Jackson is is the chief instructor there, and we have uh, three other mm -hmm. instructors that we call upon, um, mm -hmm. who are also uh, really skilled and really good coaches. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I do go to that school occasionally, especially if we've got an event involving any of our corporate sponsors or Honda. Um, yeah. The the Daythorpe Honda Off Road one, I front. 99.9% of those which I thoroughly enjoy mm -hmm. um, and the bit that I like about it as well is because you know whilst we meet and greet everybody and we have teas and coffees and we sign up and we do all the briefing you know I yeah. do get people uh, at lunch they say to me you can ride all right actually have you ridden that and, I, and I, <laughs> I do like that element of what we do because yeah it's yeah. just you know, I don't publicise what I've done at all in the briefing. We just chat like normal, and it uh, does make mm -hmm. me chuckle. <laughs> wow, I didn't think every who doesn't know who Dave Thorpe is, especially coming on the school like that. But I think again, it, it's part of your nature is very humbling. I think as well, mate, to to get to hear yeah, that. Yeah, there is, but it also um, shows, you know, like the you know our school is not really a competition school. It's about people that you know may have yes. been in it for a short period it, of time or a long period of time, but just want to come back and have a go. Mm -hmm. Exactly, just getting back to being on a motorcycle, you know, and 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 spending the day on one and just having that smile, you know, that that's what it's about when you get off there. Um, in the British scene, obviously this year, I mean, I consider that uh, when we do come racing, Tommy Searle, Jake Nichols, and Steve Clark being one of the strongest teams that you could probably pick uh, on paper from the British scene. Um, but I just wanted to ask the question, and I'm going to throw this out completely openly, and doesn't matter what era, if money was no object and you had the point, the pick of any particular rider, whether it be American, European, money no object from any era, who would you have considered? Ooh, that's a good one. I know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> And the reasoning behind it. Go back to my day. <clears throat> so like in my time when I was racing. Um, yeah. I spent a lot of time in Japan with um, Ricky Johnson, David Bailey and Johnny O'Mara. And those three people were extremely, well, just very articulate riders. Yeah, their technical ability was amazing. Their physical attributes were amazing. So in my time, it would be one of those three, um, if not all of them, if money was no object. Wow. Okay. How do you feel then off the back of that question? Because obviously you beat Jeff Ward and David Bailey in the MX of Nations going in a straight up heads to head. Does that give you any more kind of you know do you feel happier about that given the fact that they you thought they were so talented and to do that to them yeah but they they also whooped my ass at Madura. <laughs> so you know the the, the 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 nations is a unique event because it's and it goes back to what i said about british grand prix it's about people falling on form on that day and um mm -hmm. yeah it uh I had some great races with them at uh, Gaeldorf in Germany, and um, they would quite rightly say they had some great races against me at Madura. So, yeah, it's... Uh, Swings and roundabouts, I guess. Yeah. But, but they, those guys were amazing athletes in their time. And obviously, as manager of the MX Nations team as well, uh, how did it feel for you standing up on that podium with obviously Heron, Nickel and, and mailing that of your pick of your iconic team that it is now well it was great i mean for those three guys it was a dream come true because i don't think anybody would have put a great deal of money on us before we could, we went to the event and um you know, they they between the three of them rode out of their skin um we had a good roll of the dice on the day a bit of luck um which everybody needs but yeah that would have um <clears throat> been one of the highlights of their careers because it was a fantastic achievement for all three of them to win the donations. Super. And um, moving on later into your career as well, of course, 
uh, and a lot of people know this because they, they normally say the 85, 86, 89 World Championships. But of course, you are the 2007 Vets World Champion as well and had some good victories back again at Namur in Donington Park. Yeah, I kind of, I enjoyed it. Um, it's a butt coming here though, I fear. Did you hear yeah, that there, so? It, yeah. Yeah, it, it was the, the reason Gazette started the Vets thing was to try and entice people like myself to... to to race but he kind of i think he quickly worked out that you know most people that have raced at the highest level were involved with teams and it wasn't it wasn't possible for them to work as a grand prix coach or team manager and race at that weekend but i kind of i enjoyed it um it's um yeah to to my dad my dad even now he if people ask me, and I do get asked a lot to do various races, whether it be vets or whatever, <clears throat> my dad always says to me, why? Why do you want to race, Dave? You can run, cycle, swim. You can do everything you want to do with like my daughter, my grandson. You can do it. I can do everything. He said, why do you want to put that at risk? And there is no answer for that with me. You know, when you invite the word race. Um, and yeah. <laughs> what really stuck in my mind was the last year I did um, I did the vets. I think it was two thousand and I think it was eight. <clears throat> Unfortunately for me, there was a round at Lommel, and um, even in my heyday in the eighties, I wouldn't even test at Lommel. If Honda said to me, "We're going to test at Lommel," I used to say, "Let me know how you get on." Because oh, no, honestly, <laughs> honestly, I find Lommel probably one of the most difficult tracks in the world. And it was, you know, you got to remember in the 80s, Eric and Andre were very good sand riders, very good sand riders. And I, when we tested, I just didn't want to get my butt kicked when we tested. I wanted to always be on a high. So I always used to do everything in my power not to go. But going back to the, <laughs> the vet race, I um, I tried to do a fast lap uh, towards the end, um, tried to get one more in, and my left foot caught the bank as I jumped across the start straight. And it kind of threw my leg over the side of the bike, which dropped my shoulder down on the throttle, which I got a big handful of whiskey throttle. And... Um, I let oh, the bike no. go. Oh no. And I remember rolling but looking where my bike was going. It was going dead straight up the track, but the track went left at the end. And I just <laughs> well, it oh. I, I kind of knew that was something was going to horrible. So I kind of literally when I finished rolling I just started to run because I knew my bike was going to crowd. And oh, when I no. got there, unfortunately the lady a marshal um the bike had, had hit her badly. <clears throat> And um, it broke her leg. And that was really the end of my racing because I kind of looked at myself. And I know it can happen anywhere for any one of us, but, you know, the, the words yeah. that my dad said, why, really sort of resonated in my mind. So I kind of stopped racing from that point on, really. Well, it's a shame, but I couldn't, I can't kind of get the point i mean i was very close to remember the british grand prix at uh, matterley when guys are landing oh, yeah. in the crowd yeah literally about four or five people away from me that was and that was as scary as hell yeah. so uh, i can only imagine um what was going through your mind then i should imagine it's pretty scary but you can see the thought process into why you you came to a conclusion yeah. there i guess yeah it was um yeah just Parents are not normally wrong on some things, and yeah, Dad was pretty right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think from this point, I think we'll move on to the Q and A, shall we? Oh, mate, are you ready for this? Because there are some goodies <laughs> in this. Uh, to be fair, a couple of them we have already touched on, um, but there is some uh, random ones thrown in there. I'll give yeah, them that. So um, so this is one of the questions from Sean Bass on uh, the website this week on Live. Um, he said, hi, Dave, when you did AMCA for a couple of years, what memories did the AMCA leave you? And he's also put a little note in as well. He said, I remember you helping me at Browns Hill with better line choice. Legend. Uh, only but good memories of the AMCA. Um, <clears throat> a fantastic opportunity. Um, lovely people. Great tracks. Um, and it gave me 
as I said before, my first taste of international racing. Um, so yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it all. Um, it uh, it was a, a big part of what made me the rider that I was. Mm-hmm. A couple of things that we've picked up on from your answers, Dave, is uh, do you do you believe in fate? I mean, there's a couple of things there that have kind of swayed your career and possibly in a different way in your thought process that might not have happened unless these certain places that had fallen into place. Really. I do, I do. And, uh, you know, Jake, who, who rides with me now, he he kind of, we, we both have a little bit of a similar process that, you know, in, in racing, <clears throat> to get to a race or whatever, if, if you have to start pushing, i.e., uh, I'll give you an example, and, and I hope Jake doesn't mind me saying it, but when Jake was uh, destined to be British champion a couple of years ago, um, the yeah. the week the week before um, his ill fated race at uh, Blacksall, um, we had a small problem with his bike, and um, in a nutshell, Jake wanted to do the local race at Blacksall, and uh, we couldn't quite get his bike back to him in time, so they swapped an engine, and it kind mm-hmm. of we were all up against it. He was up against it, but anyway, he got his bike done, and then. He went and raced, raced, and we know that he was very unlucky to break his leg. But we often talk about that now, you know, when we have scenarios where we're sort of up against something and we kind of both say to ourselves, are we really meant to be here doing this today or next week or whatever? And we have that conversation together. So I do, there is a part of me that um, if, if I've got to really push to do something, then sometimes something in me says, and especially your dad as well i mean he seemed to be kind of a an influence over you with there as well and and one of the things i wanted to touch on is is jake and obviously his recovery since that broken leg of course um i mean he is one of the nicest and fastest guys on the circuit let's be honest but the boy has had no luck whatsoever is he over his career what are your thoughts he's on that? been incredibly unlucky and you know what what I like about Jake is, you know, if you, you, it's a very strong family unit up there in Ipswich, you know, <clears throat> with his mum and dad and uh, his wife, Blue. You know, it's a pretty uh, tight-knit family. And, you know, they are so passionate about the racing. You know, Jake's very much like me, loves to ride his bike, whether it be motocross, enduro, mountain bike. He just loves to be out on two wheels. And mm-hmm. you know, you you look back on his career, and he, he's had some really big highs, but then he's had some really unlucky blows right at the wrong point. Um, and I guess that's you know, all the professional race racers we have that we can all look back and say woulda, coulda, shoulda. Um, but yeah, Jake Jake has been unlucky, and I particularly felt sorry for him in uh, 2018 because he'd rode amazing all year and um he truly didn't deserve that no definitely such a nice nice lad as well if anybody's deserving of it so i'm gonna get you to ask this next question <laughs> i'm standing back on this one uh, so this is a question from scott sims uh i'm gonna read it as as he's put it dave yeah, i was gonna um, say you can't put it any other so way so right. can you <laughs> <laughs> um it says why couldn't you sort the kawasaki out or was it just a bag of shit <laughs> His his or words, not ours. Just, no. Yeah, his words. Or did Kawasaki just didn't want to change the bike to suit you? Be honest. This is yeah. what it's So, point. unfortunately for me, um, <clears throat> the Kawasaki, I guess you're talking about 1990, 1991, um, Alec, mm-hmm. Alec signed me with the right intention and we all went into it with the right intentions. But the bottom line was that was their first perimeter frame. And... Um, Mm-hmm. It was a development bike, and at that stage in my career, uh, I didn't need to be a development rider because I was kind of quite set in my ways. So you know, there was a certain amount of to and fro in to get the bike so that it kind of suited me. But mm-hmm. the reality is, I'd been spoiled um, for the previous five and a half years with HRC because, <clears throat> yeah. I never had to make a bike to suit me because it always suited me because it was mm-hmm. a bike that was already developed. Um, and I found that the Kawasaki 
yeah, it just didn't quite work for me. Um, but I wouldn't say I was a bag of shit because I won on it. I did win on it. You know, people yeah. forget that I did win Grand Prix on it. But coming from HRC to a development factory, Kawasaki was it was uh, in hindsight the wrong move, but at the time it felt right. Yeah. Did you did you feel like you were almost a test rider at the time? Well, no, I did. Where... I did, and I didn't. I mean, Paul Malin rode the bike very well. You can't forget. You know. You know. He, pup, yeah. he did ride the bike very well. Um, you know, he'd he'd always been on the Kawasaki at that time, so he he rode it well. But it just for whatever reason, coming from the Honda, having um, had the benefit of HRC doing everything, all of a sudden where it was kind of more about me developing a bike it just didn't quite fit at the time yeah but bearing in mind you still finished fifth and seventh in the world championships on the oh yeah no no so no Don't, have been you know and, bad. and to be honest with you this 91 um they kindly allowed me to go back to the steel chassis and um you know the first grand prix uh i was running second or third um in uh work no in uh Payer. And uh, on the uphill triple, last lap or second from last lap, um, the Conrad come outside of the engine. Which oh, put, my Lord. Yeah, that's, <laughs> not what you, that's, that's not no, what you want, um, is it? Put me in a big nosedive. And the upshot was I dislocated my shoulder. And, um, you know, anybody that's dislocated their shoulder <clears throat> badly will know that um, it's not a good, good way to start a Grand Prix season. So 91, I think, would have been a lot better than it was, far better. But that injury, and going back to the the, the chassis that you yeah kind of I preferred, kind of, I guess I as well. But with it. I did feel better with it. But um, because I revved the bike quite hard in my Honda days, the the you know I joke about it being a chocolate conrod in those days. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll find it was electrical failure in the right yeah, top. Yeah, well. They, they never take Conrod coming out the side, the, the factory and guys. There I they... say I learned a lot of things from Alex, bless him. He, um, he was a, he was a, a good PR man um, for, for whatever company he worked for. He was a good lad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so moving to the next one. Uh, I've been on about this for the past couple of weeks now, but this is um, a question from Dan Merrifield, and he says, um, do you think a GP could ever be run at Farley Castle again with the right planning? Absolutely. There is, there is you know, if everyone could get their head round, um, yeah, the hard standing bit, which is one of the criteria mm-hmm. at Grand Prix, as we all know now, if somehow we could, could work that, I think uh, a British Grand Prix at Farley Castle but a promoter, you know, if that was Steve Dixon, I'm sure that um, he would get far more people through the gate because as a one-off event, you know, you would get everybody go there to watch the top stars on mm-hmm. an old school type circuit. Is that more from a nostalgic point of yeah, view, would you say, would mate? Or, yeah, it's just the yeah, whole incumbent, you know, really. I, for one, would, would pay to go and watch uh, Tim Geyser and Jeffrey Erlins round Farley Castle. Who wouldn't? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and of course, we know how big a success is the Vets Nations at Farley as well. I mean, that's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger now, and that's getting to a point where they're going to have to seriously think about logistically wise because that's getting a big concern now as well. I I went there this year for the first time. It's a an amazing event. Really enjoyed it. So you know, Farley is one of the places that could host the modern day Grand Prix. Um, There would need to be a lot of uh, what's the word you know, a lot of discussion on where people would park and how everyone would park. Mm-hmm. But I feel sure that, you know, if we really wanted to push, um, it would be an amazing event. I mean, yeah, I, I, I can, and it's probably the same for you. So I reflect, I mean, I, when I was with uh, Farley, I remember having to walk across probably three mm-hmm. or four fields, car parking wise, just to get to the track back in the day, you, you know, um, when you won your world titles, Dave, there. So i will be excellent to get back to that. I mean, 20,000 plus fans, you know, trackside yeah, again. And and also for the promoters as well, because, you know, I watch Steve every year. He does an amazing job down at Matley, you know, and, and you know, I don't know what the cutoff point is for, for people coming through the gate for Steve to make money. But, mm-hmm. you know, you want, you want it to work for the promoter. 
you, you kind of look at all the effort that he puts in if you want it to work for him. So, you know, if you could go to an iconic venue and all the red tape could be sort of worked around, I know I feel sure that it would work for the riders, the fans and the promoter. Well, they're definitely, definitely doing that because, you know, at the end of the day, they're putting everything on the line for us, aren't they? So um, we need to embrace that and just help them out. So great question there from Dan. And uh, go on then. So last question. How often do you still ride, Dave? And given the choice, do you prefer the 450F or the 500 two-stroke? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I ride as much as I can. So on average, uh, once a week as the minimum. Um, if I can mm-hmm. be two or three times, um, mm-hmm. I enjoy to go. You know, we've got my friends where I live in the village. They all ride out Green Lane in round here. I've got friends in Exmouth. They go Green Lane in, and I, I quite often turn up with them and go out for a ride. Um, yeah, I love it. Um, back to the bikes, two fifty. I'm oh, sorry, two stroke or four stroke. Um, at my age and the way I ride, uh, if I'm honest, I love the four stroke. I love the magic button. Um, you know, when, I'm, when I'm out with my friends and my heart's in my mouth and I'm breathing too heavy, to stall it, to have to find the kickstart, to find the level and kick it would be the one now. I just love the button. <laughs> okay, then. Um, yeah, to ride, definitely. But to look at that 86... 500 of yours probably one of the most iconic machines probably on this planet yeah you say that but you know kind of when i look at geyser's bike if you get close to geyser's bike you know i mean that that bike is a work of art you know it is a full factory bike and you know whilst you know i do love the look of the old style uh two strokes i think the four stroke of geysers in particular i mean there's a there's a lot of technology in there and um if you're lucky enough to get close enough, it's it's for there to you to see. Definitely. I, I can only see from looking over in, in the awning and things like that. But if you look, if you put the standard bike up against it, there is probably nothing on that bike that is generally no, the same. I mean, well, certainly this year from what we've seen, you know, um, the bike is all new and all singing and dancing. But it is a, is an amazing bit of kit. I mean, the welding on the frame, the, the beefing up of the frame, it's all together. And that's something to see if... Uh, Obviously, as we get on this, hopefully get on with the rest of the season, how do you think that's going to plan out for the rest of the team for the rest you mean of this for year? Grand Prix? No, for, for the team after COVID-19, what are you, what plans have you put in place now, given the fact that you've not made one yet? How, how are you to see the team um, moving forward now? So I think, uh, well, I know the, the ACU had a meeting with manufacturers a bit of while ago, um, and it is their intention when we are allowed is to finish the season, which is great news. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and us as a team, you know, we, we're doing as everyone else is, you know. I'm just going to go cycling now. I have one one cycle a day um, and just keeping indoors. And that's that's what the guys are doing. The guys are training hard at home. Um, they're not riding at the moment because um, obviously we don't want to put any more pressure on the NHS. Um, so, yeah, we're just towing the line the same as everyone else. Brilliant stuff, mate. Brilliant. Um, there we are. So I don't know if you guys want to add any more bits and bobs in. The, the, the one bit that we probably missed out on is in the very beginning, when my dad uh, used to go to train with Wade Training School at Hawkstone Park. And um, there's one little story that really sticks in my mind. was uh, We used to have one, mm-hmm. one pro a day teachers. And um, <clears throat> at the time, one day we had Roger Harvey there. And Roger was a, um, a top five Grand Prix rider at the time, 125TC. And he taught us and uh, had a thoroughly good day. And at the end of the day, we could ride around with them. And I remember mm-hmm. riding Hawkstone and uh, Roger, he come by me. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I can keep up. So I was only, I was only 15. <laughs> I was 14. 14. I thought, mm-hmm. I wonder if I can keep up. And so I shot off after him. And, um, sort of sat there and then halfway around the lap I was thinking hmm, I wonder if he's trying and then we went over <laughs> we went over the finish line and as we went up the hill I saw him have a look over his shoulder and I thought oh he knows I'm in I'll see what happened so that lap I hung on and it was a hang on I'm not gonna lie it wasn't anything it wasn't anything pretty from me but at the end of that lap A I was you know breathing rather heavy so I had to steady it up but my thought process at that time was, Dave, if you work hard, you might be able to do this. 
and Roger was one of the real people that sort of made me realize that it was possible you know and um yeah. he he and many others you know Rob Hooper uh, Vic Allen Andy Robertson, Dave Thomas, all those people that were seasoned pros, Bob Wright, they taught me so much in my early years. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, I wouldn't change many things. You know, maybe the broken leg, I'd change that, but the rest of it I'd roll with. What about coming off the back of that then, when you say you were sticking with Roger there as it was, um, what, what do you think to these lads coming into the sport now where motocross has evolved now over the years? It was very you had to kind of tough and grind it out back in your day, whereas now you scrub everything. It's all about flow and things like that. What are your thoughts on the evolution of motocross then, as um, it were? I just think it, it, it's the way the tracks are now, aren't they? The way, yeah, just the way the tracks are. You, I, don't, I don't think you can compare the tracks of the 80s to the modern-day tracks now. Yeah. No, and especially with the two-strokes, when I can remember you going down Farley Bank with all those square edge braking bumps that they used to be 10 times. Well, I, I remember back and reflecting back, they probably used to be 10 times worse back in your yeah, day. But, you know, the, the difference in now is, you know, when we, you know, you've only got to go to a practice track because we live in a different world now where people, when they get injured, when they have problems, you know, they always look at the track. So the modern day mm-hmm. track is always broomed. You know, if, if you turn up at a practice yep. track now and yep. it's bumpy when you start, you know, you've only got to listen around and everybody's moaning. Whereas in the old yeah. days, when we used to go practice, you know, tracks were the track. If you don't like it, go home. That was the, yeah. Yeah, that was the norm, wasn't it? That's what so, you put you up know, with. You, so you, the, the modern day riders that ride now, I think, you know, they're just a different mindset. We're in a different place in the world. So that rounds us up for episode three already, Darren, of the, the Live Motocross podcast. Um, Dave, massive thank you for joining us today. I know it's probably given you a bit of something to do while you've been at home. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to go, like I said to you, I'm going to go cycling. So cycling and cut the grass. Yeah, I won't be far behind you, mate. Then. <laughs> it's like... I won't be far behind you. I'm going for a cycle now as well, I think, while we can. Thank you so much for your time again, mate. Another great guest on episode three then. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. You're welcome. There we are. So if you want to listen into any more episodes of the Live podcast, make sure you head over to ACAST, Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes. We've literally got it on every single platform now. So just make sure you tune in, subscribe, and check out our new episodes.